Take your Bibles with me and turn to Proverbs chapter 21. Proverbs chapter 21. And we want to deal with a subject I've entitled, The King of Hearts. Speaking of the Lord our God and His Son Jesus Christ. May we from this short study be humbled by the fact that God is able to harden and darken hearts according to His own will. May we be encouraged and thankful that He's able to open and enlighten hearts according to His own will. And may we pray, including in most of our prayers or all of them, that God would continue to work in our hearts. That's, those are the goals. Proverbs chapter 21 and verse 1. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord as the rivers of water. He turneth it whithersoever he will. This is the God that we worship. This is a God not known in very many other places. And we love Him just the way the Bible describes Him. When you look down from an airplane upon rivers, they do not run a straight course from A to B. They twist back and forth and sometimes even regaining some of the ground that they had given up in their previous course. But they twist back and forth. And you can see that progress. You can look at it on a detailed map. And the Bible wants us to know that a king's heart in God's hands is just as manipulated as the rivers of water. God directs them from the mountains to the sea, but their route there is very twisted back and forth, and so it is with the hearts of kings. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. The Lord reaches out, and when the Lord touches a man, and remember that expression, when the Lord touches a man with his hand, he is able to change his heart. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord as the rivers of water. He turneth it whithersoever he will. Wherever God wants to direct a king, he is able to do it, and he does do it. With the effeminate milquetoast preaching of today, most men have no idea that God overrules hearts. They think your heart is your own property, and what kind of a tyrant would it be if he were to direct your heart? We're thankful that He directs our hearts. Because if He hadn't had mercy on our hearts, I'll tell you where mine would be. And no offense, it wouldn't be here. I thank God He arrested my heart and turned my heart and changed my heart and opened my heart and inclined my heart toward Him. The Sovereign of the universe owes no respect to the human heart or to its emotional choices. Men can scream and they can squabble over the free will of man, or man's free moral agency all they want, God still directs their hearts. From a human perspective, God magnifies His sovereignty by controlling the decision-making apparatus of our heart. God controls it. God does not put evil in any man's heart. doesn't have to. There's enough there. How could you get any more in? The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Why would it need to add evil to anybody's heart? There's enough evil there already. All he has to do is withdraw his grace and you will do any wicked thing that he allows you to do. There is no sin that you are above.
There is no sin too low for you to stoop if God withdrew His grace. Our God is not the author of sin any more than the sun is the cause of darkness because when it leaves, it gets dark. Jonathan Edwards had a wonderful line of reasoning along that line. Because he was accused of teaching that God was the author of sin. When the sun leaves, it always gets dark. Does that make the sun the cause of darkness? The opposite is true. The sun is the cause of light. And the Lord God of heaven and Jesus Christ is the cause of righteousness and holiness and goodness. And we only, and we only do those things when He has directed our hearts toward them. But if He lets us go, we will do anything and we will do it quickly. God doesn't put evil in men's hearts. There's enough evil there already. The Bible tells us, be not deceived. God is not tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. Every man is drawn away of his own lust. Every king thinks he's doing something that he chose to do. He just doesn't know what's happening to him. He's happy. He's free. He does not know that he is being directed. He is just serving his own lust. When he goes to war, he wants to build his empire. He just doesn't know why his chief of staff brought that particular country in and laid it out before him on a map. Because the God of heaven wanted him to start there. His heart is free, but he ends up doing what God had planned for him. Their hearts were free in crucifying the Lord Jesus Christ, but they did it exactly as God had ordained it would be done. They did not break a bone of him, but they did pierce his side. Because the Bible had said, then a bone of him shall be broken, but they shall pierce his side. They cast lots for his clothing because the Bible had said they would cast lots for his clothing. And on and on it goes. They were responsible and they were judged for crucifying the Lord of glory. But God directed their every action to accomplish his perfect will. We trust a sovereign God. If If you have ever been discouraged by praying, you can pray for anyone's heart because God is able to reach down and touch a heart and change it. God is able to judge men even when He directs them to accomplish His own honor and glory because they're still sinning freely while He's directing them. God can enlarge a king's heart like Solomon's. Look at 1 Kings 4.29. You're going to have to be quick because I'm going to read, I would love to wait until I heard no more pages rustling, but I'll retire then. 1 Kings 4.29. I love you all. And God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding exceeding much and largeness of heart, even as the sand that is on the seashore. 1 Kings 4.29 We consider the sand on the seashore close to infinity. It approaches infinity because we can't count it. And so Solomon's heart was enlarged with wisdom and understanding. God is able to do that, but He's also able to do this. Daniel chapter 4. Daniel 4. And if you can't get there in time, you can listen to me read it. Let his heart be changed from man's, and let a beast's heart be given unto him, and let seven times pass over him. God said of Nebuchadnezzar, the greatest, proudest monarch the world has ever seen, let him have a beast's heart for seven years. Now that is a dramatic difference. One heart was enlarged to be like the sandwiches by the seashore, And the other was given over to a beast. And God made those choices about two different kings. 
If God is able to do such things, should we be praying for God to have mercy on our hearts and turn them toward Him? Because He is able. That's what we want to study. Let's go. Genesis 35 and verse 5. This will be an old-fashioned Bible study. Genesis 35 and verse 5. This is Jacob with his young boys going to obey the Lord in worshiping Him. God has said to Jacob, go worship. But all he's got is a bunch of young boys. Remember? What's the oldest boy? About about 12 to thir- twelve or 13. Because he was 20 years. He worked 7 years before he could even conceive with Rachel and Leah and so forth. And it takes 9 months to have a child. So 12 or 13 years of age and down. Genesis 35 and verse 5. And they journeyed. Jacob with his big family of 4 wives, 12 sons or eleven sons and one daughter. And the terror of God was upon the cities that were round about them, and they did not pursue after the sons of Jacob. Jacob's taking his family to church. There is the fear of enemies, because the enemies could have defeated that family very easily, but God put His terror upon them so that they did not pursue Jacob and his family. This is God controlling men. They didn't chase a man that was very rich. Remember? He had so much stuff he had to travel in two bands. They did not pursue all that wealth because God terrorized them. Exodus chapter 4. The Lord willing, I will go from left to right. That'll help you. Exodus 4 and verse 21. And you know who this is about. It's about Pharaoh. This is the first time it tells us this in the Bible. When Moses went to Pharaoh, the Lord said to Moses, When thou goest to return into Egypt, see that thou do all those wonders before Pharaoh, which I have put in thine hand. But I will harden his heart that he shall not let the people go. Before Moses ever got there, God told Moses, though you're going to give him some pretty great miracles and signs and wonders, I'm going to harden his heart. He will not let them go because I've got a bigger purpose to accomplish with Pharaoh. I'm going to get myself honor and glory upon that man. That's Exodus 4.21. If we flip over to chapter 14, we can read the end of Pharaoh's life, and the same thing is still being said about him. Exodus 14, verse 4. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, that he shall follow after them. And I will be honored upon Pharaoh and upon all his host, that the Egyptians may know that I am the Lord. And they did so. Verse 8. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued after the children of Israel. And the children of Israel went out with a high hand. All the money of Egypt. But we can also look at verse 17. And I, behold, I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians, and they shall follow them. And I will get me honor upon Pharaoh and upon all his host, upon his chariots and upon his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord, when I have gotten me honor upon Pharaoh, upon his chariots, upon his horsemen. Greatest army in the world, chasing the people of God. And the Lord said, I'm going to harden them until they will come to the Red Sea where I can drown the whole bunch of them. Do you know what Paul quotes that verse in Romans chapter 9? Romans chapter 9, a New Testament chapter on election. And he said, even for the same purpose had God raised up Pharaoh that he might get himself honor and glory for his name. And we still talk about it to this day. We love what God did in the midst of the Red Sea. God looked down into the midst of the Red Sea and saw the fanciest chariots on earth 
with the most decorated soldiers on earth chasing after the people of God, the Lord looked into the host of the Egyptians and took the wheels off their chariots. He wanted them to think about drowning before they got to drown. The fear was so great in them, they were looking forward to water, suffocating the air out of their lungs. Because God got Himself honor and glory upon Pharaoh, upon His chariots, upon His horsemen. And He did all of that by hardening Pharaoh's heart because even a horse wouldn't have wanted to go down into a bowl of water and go through on a narrow piece of land when there was water on both sides. I've seen trained horses balk at jumps in equestrian courses let alone go down into two with great big mountains of water on both sides. Any normal thinking man would not have chased the people of God after all the plagues that God brought upon the land of Egypt, but God hardened his heart. Oh, brethren, if you want to play with the God that we worship in this church, and if you want to play with the Bible, God can make your life worse than you can imagine. And He will. You say He hasn't done it yet. It's called long-suffering. And it says this in Proverbs chapter 29 and verse 1, He that being often reproved, hardeneth his neck, shall suddenly be destroyed, and that without remedy. Our God is the King of hearts. And I'm not talking about a playing card. Our God rules over the hearts of men. Exodus chapter 34. Love the Word of God. Don't doze on me. This is the precious Word of God. Every verse that I read to you, if you'll believe it, it'll build your faith. It'll give you wisdom and understanding. It'll strengthen that shield that you should lift up in faith, and it'll it'll whet the edge of that blade called the sword of the Spirit. Ephesians 30, Exodus 34 and verse 24. Three times a year, God asked His people to come and worship Him in a specially chosen place. It says that in verse 23, Thrice in the year shall all your men children appear before the Lord God, the God of Israel. I want all the men to leave their farms, leave their cities and villages, and come to Shiloh or Jerusalem to worship the Lord. Well, any enemy would just walk in and take over. For I will cast out the nations before thee and enlarge thy borders, Neither shall any man desire thy land when thou shalt go up to appear before the Lord thy God thrice in the year. God would take out of the hearts of men, all the enemies of Israel, the desire to want their wealth while they were worshiping God. God is able to control the desires of your heart. Now notice, He's restraining a heart from doing something evil. Oh Lord, please restrain my heart and take away my desires for sinful things. If you can do it for your enemies, how much more can you do it for me? Do you want to pray that right now? Pray it in your heart. Lord, take away my desire for wicked things. He's able to do it. He's the king of hearts. Deuteronomy chapter 2. Sihon, king of the Amorites. Let's read about him. Deuteronomy chapter 2. If you had heard what this band of people had done to Pharaoh and his chariots and his horsemen, would you have sent an ambassador for peace? I hope so. I hope so. But why didn't they? You read it to us, brother. Joshua chapter 11, verses 18 through 20. Why didn't they? Because God hardened their hearts to come in battle. Do you know how many cities were taken down in the, in the land of Canaan? Seventy. If I was city 65, I think I would start thinking about the fact that these guys are pretty good. 
I think I'd send a letter. Have mercy upon us. We'll be your servants for the rest of your lives. Just don't come against us in battle. But do you know what God did? He hardened up their hearts so that they marched right out to take them on. 65, 60, take a number. 66, 67, take another number. 68, and God wiped them out because that land is what He had given to His people and the wicked people that were living there, the Canaanites, He wanted utterly destroyed from the earth. Deuteronomy chapter 2, here's a specific king, Sihon king of the Amorites. Verse 30, But Sihon king of, the he- of Heshbon, he was the king of the Amorites, that's his capital city, would not let us pass by him. For the Lord thy God hardened his spirit and made his heart obstinate, that he might deliver him into thy hand as appeareth this day. Moses is explaining to the nation of Israel what had happened on their way out of Egypt. God took that king and made him obstinate. He should have been... He should have pacified Israel. He shouldn't have been obstinate. He should have been easy to get along with rather than being obstinate and the Lord destroyed him. But notice who did it. The Lord did it. We've already read Joshua. We've had Joshua 11 read in our hearing. Let's go to Judges chapter 14. Oh, let's go to 1 Samuel 2.25. If I change my mind a few times, it's because I've got 100 and I'm only going to use 40. 1 Samuel 2. I haven't counted them, but it looks something like that. There's 66 lines on a page. I've got two pages. 1 Samuel 2.25, you've read this one recently, and I hope that it stuck out to you when you read it. Eli had two very wicked sons that were priests, and they were cheating and stealing the offerings that were brought for the Lord, and they were sleeping, committing adultery and fornication with the women that were coming to worship. And Eli rebuked his sons, but here's what we're told about the family. 1 Samuel 2.25, this is Eli speaking. If one man sin against another, the judge shall judge him. But if a man sin against the Lord, who shall entreat for him? Notwithstanding, they hearkened not unto the voice of their father, because the Lord would slay them. Hophni and Phinehas did not obey Eli's warning, because God had a better plan for their lives. They were going to die in battle as a picture of God's judgment on wicked children. That's 1 Samuel 2.25. Let's go to 2 Samuel 24. Let's look at David. Now, David wasn't a wicked man like Hophni and Phinehas. What does the Bible say about David? Second Samuel 24, 1. And again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and He moved David against them to say, Go, number Israel and Judah. God is angry against Israel, and He moves David against Israel. Well, actually, it was against God, but it was against Israel because they were the ones that were going to be punished for David's sin of numbering Israel. God never wanted His kings to number His people so that He would never put trust in numbers, but always put His trust in the Lord. And David here is doing something wrong because God moved David to do it. Now, Second, First Chronicles 21.1 will tell us how He did it. First Chronicles... Chapter 21. One of the first things my father taught me as a child, and I encourage all of you to do it, is memorize the books of the Bible. That way you can find these references faster. 
You know the Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus routine. I know it's the Habakkuk and Zechariah and Zephaniah that give you the problems. First Chronicles 21 and verse 1. And Satan stood up against Israel and provoked David to number Israel. Now, we're supposed to compare spiritual things with spiritual. So when one verse tells us God moved David to do it, and the other verse says Satan was involved in doing it, we understand exactly what happened, don't we? God stepped back and let Satan have David with constraints, obviously. He could do one thing. Number Israel. He let Satan have David. Remember with Job, there were constraints. Okay, you can do whatever you want to Job's stuff, but you can't touch him. First trial. Second trial, you can do whatever you want to to Job's health, but you can't take his life. God puts restraints. And here he let David number Israel. How many men died because of this? 70,000. Because God was angry with his people Israel and he chastened and killed 70,000 of them. And here's the sin that caused it to happen. A sin that he led David to commit. Turn with me to 1 Kings 11.14. What are the first 13 verses about? Solomon loved strange women. How many? 700 wives, 300 concubines. That's a lot of women. They were princesses. They worshipped foreign gods. He did not marry in the Lord. He did not find the virtuous woman. He tells us that in the book of Ecclesiastes, that he counted through a thousand women and didn't find a single good one. Here in 1 Kings chapter 11, the first 13 verses are about him loving strange women and them taking his heart away from the Lord. And so look what we read in verse 14. And the Lord stirred up an adversary unto Solomon, Hadad the Edomite. He was of the king's seed in Edom. There was a leftover son of the king of the Edomites that God stirred up against Solomon to take away the peace of his reign because he was no longer the righteous man that God had told him to be. Over and over we read these things. Look at 12, chapter 12. Solomon's dead now and his son comes into power. The nation of Israel comes to Rehoboam, Solomon's son, and they say, if you'll reduce taxes, we'll serve you forever. He consults the old men that were his father's wise advisors and they said, Listen to these eager people. Give them a tax break and they'll serve you forever. He calls those young men that he played basketball with and they said, forget it, man. We ain't going to lose our privileges at the country club. We want you to raise taxes. Solomon said, good idea, good thinking, young pups. I'll go tell the nation that I'm going to raise taxes over what my father did. We're told in 1 Kings 12:15, wherefore the king hearkened not unto the people, for the cause was from the Lord that he might perform his saying, which the Lord spake by Ahijah the Shilonite unto Jeroboam the son of Nebat. And all of that is to say, God took ten tribes away from Solomon and his family, which caused Rehoboam to have a hard heart toward the request of the people. God did it because he was going to fulfill his own prophecy in the details of the history of Israel. Oh, there are so many more. Isaiah chapter 10. Isaiah chapter 10. I hope you heard the young brother that read from Revelation chapter 17. It is not ordinary behavior for kings 
to give their kingdom away to another king. But in Revelation 17, we saw ten kings who gave their kingdoms to the beast. And why did they do something so contrary to nature? Because God hath put in their hearts to fulfill His will. They could have been thinking all sorts of things as to why they would give their kingdom away, but what it did was accomplish the will of God by bringing the ten nations of Europe under the reign of the beast. And where did it come from? God hath put in their hearts to fulfill His will. But we're back to Isaiah 10 and the king of Assyria. The king of Assyria, God said, I'm just using you, O king of Assyria, to to spank my people Israel. You are nothing to me but a rod in my hand. Verse 7 tells us, Howbeit he meaneth not so. The king of Assyria isn't thinking that he wants to please the Lord. Neither doth, neither doth his heart think so. But it is in his heart to destroy and cut off nations, not a few. Notice, here's where the Lord tells us how the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man are reconciled. The king's idea is, I want to expand my empire. I'm going to whip up on some of these little nations around me. God just directs him toward the nation of Israel because God's going to spank, chasten his people. He, the king of Assyria doesn't know what he's doing. He just wants to add to his empire. God's using that greed and ambition to accomplish the chastening of his people Israel. This is a wonderful passage. Do you know what God calls the king of Assyria? The axe in verse 15 and the saw. Shall the axe boast itself against him that heweth therewith? When a man is cutting down a tree with an axe, should the axe boast about how effective it is at cutting down trees? Or is it really the man that's swinging the axe? How about a saw? This is, the, this is right here in the Bible. Right here in the Bible, verse 15. How about a saw? Should the saw boast against him that shakes it? A saw is moved back and forth to cut something in half. And God said, you're my axe, you're my saw, you're my rod, you are nothing. I'm just using you to chasten my people. And just as soon as I'm done using you as an axe, I'm going to break you in half. Read the rest of Isaiah chapter 10. See, it wasn't in his heart. He was just an ambitious, greedy king that wanted to build his empire, but God used it, that greed, to chasten his people Israel. Look at one, one more. Oh, Romans chapter 1. You read it last night, so does that mean that I can go through it very, very quickly? Yes, good. Romans chapter 1. God has shown Himself to all men of all languages in every corner of the earth by His creation. When men do not acknowledge that there is a Creator, He then blinds their hearts. Romans chapter 1, there's four verses I want you to get out of this chapter. Romans 1, 21. Because that when they knew God, that is, they knew Him from the creation, they glorified Him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. God darkened foolish hearts that denied the existence of a Creator. Verse 24. Because they were not thankful and gave glory to creatures instead of the Creator. Verse 24 says, Wherefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness, through the lust of their own hearts. God withdrew restraint so that the wicked depravity of the human heart came out into the sodomy that we're about to have described to us. Sodomy is not normal. 
It's not natural. It's not genetic. It's a depraved consequence of the sin nature that we have from Adam. I'm being discreet. Will somebody write me an email this week and tell me that I'm being discreet? Look it. He gave them up to uncleanness through their own lusts of their own hearts. Don't you ever think that you wouldn't be a sodomite? Because if God withdrew His grace, you'd go chasing the same sex as fast as anyone that's out there. If it were not for His grace, God gave them up to the uncleanness of the lust of their own heart. He didn't have to put the lust for sodomy there, and He doesn't have to put it in your heart. You've already got it. He's just restraining it. You say, you don't know my heart. My heart wouldn't do anything like that. I do know your heart. Because the Bible tells me. I'm sorry to tell you. Listen, I'm sorry to tell you. I'm sorry to even hear the words myself. Third, let's go to verse 26. For this cause God gave them up unto vile affections. Notice, God turns men over to vile affections. The vile affections are already there. They want to do them, but He has been restraining them. Now He gives them up. And even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. That's called a lesbian today, boys and girls. Verse 28, And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind. God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient. There's four references. 21, 24, 26, and 28. God giving men's hearts and minds over to wickedness. Second Thessalonians chapter 2. Second Thessalonians chapter 2. This point is the fact of the matter. The fact of the matter is that God does rule over men's hearts. And all these examples I've given you are negative ones where God blinds men, hardens men, judges men by turning them over to the wickedness of their own hearts. And here's the final one that I'll give you, and it's not all that's in the outline. Second Thessalonians 2 Thessalonians 2.9 speaking of the man of sin and his religious system. Even him whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders and with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish because they receive not the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this cause God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie, that they all might be damned who believe not the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Brethren, this is a horrifying four verses. God sends strong delusion that men should believe a lie, that they all might be damned who believe not the truth that had been offered to them. Truth is not that far away. The book of Proverbs tells us that Lady Wisdom is in every gate. She's in every high place. She is calling the men of this world to come to her. But instead, we want the strange woman. Or mankind does. And this is what God sends. He is King of hearts. He is able to send strong delusion for you to believe a lie and be unable to deliver yourself. No one preaches this God anymore. No one preaches the God of the Bible hardly anymore in our country. But this is what the book says. And you should humble yourself and tremble before Him. The first goal we wanted to accomplish was for God to humble us. And I hope that reading these passages, we are humble. He can give us over to a reprobate mind. He can send us strong delusion to believe a lie. 
He can harden our hearts to where we'll go down in the Red Sea and drown ourselves and our families. The next point. There's a blessing in this matter, though. Let's go all the way back to Genesis 20, and we'll come left to right again. Genesis chapter 20. Genesis chapter 20. God can restrain a heart from doing something wrong. Instead of hardening it or blinding it, He can keep it from doing sin. And that's what we want to pray for under our third point. But this is our second point. God is king of the heart when men do something good and right. Genesis 20 and verse 6, Abimelech, the king of the Philistines, has taken Sarah, Abraham's wife. And God said unto him in a dream, Yea, I know that thou didst this in the integrity of thy heart. For I also withheld thee from sinning against me, therefore suffered I thee not to touch her. God said, I kept you from sinning against me. If God is able to do that for Abimelech, is He able to do that for you and me? We ought to pray that way. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the power and the kingdom and the glory forever. He was able to do that for Abimelech. We don't know if he did it for him mentally or physically, but God kept him from sinning. Look at 1 Samuel chapter 10. Hopefully you read this last night or yesterday sometime. It was your chapter for yesterday. It's daily Bible reading. 1 Samuel 10. Now Saul was short or tall? Tall. Tall. Timid or bold? Timid. Timid. When it was time for his coronation, where was he? Hiding in the stuff. It's hard to hide when you're eight foot tall. But he was hiding in the stuff. Now the Lord's going to change him, isn't he? When God gives a man an office, does God equip the man for that office? If God doesn't equip a man for an office, then God didn't put the man in the office. Someone else did. All of you fathers... You all intimidated by the job sometimes? He's made you able to do the job and to do it well. Hard being a husband sometimes? He's enabled you to do it. Here's our example. Saul. He's called him to be king. Israel shouldn't have a king, but if they want a king, God's going to give them what they want. And you never want God to give you what you want. Never. You want God to give you what God would knows is the best for you. But they want a king, so God's going to give them one. 1 Samuel 10, 9. And it was so that when he had turned his back to go from Samuel, God gave him another heart. And all those signs came to pass that day. When you read 1 Samuel 10, you don't have to believe that God regenerated Saul right there on the spot. God prepared Saul to be king. The heart here, this is not a discussion like Ephesians chapter 2 about regeneration. This is a discussion of a timid man who didn't really want to be king, making him fit for the office. And then he needs some men around him. He needs a cabinet. So what kind of a cabinet do you get? God needs to change their hearts as well. We come down to 26. 1 Samuel 10 and verse 26. And Saul also went home to Gibeah. And there went with him a band of men whose hearts God had touched. Because the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord as the rivers of water. He turneth it whithersoever he will. And if a king's heart, which is greater than an average citizen's heart, God is able to turn, he can certainly turn the hearts of other men. 
And he did so for the men that followed Saul. God prepared Saul to be a leader over Israel, and God gave him some mighty men that were going to be able to support him in that kingship. I've already read to you 1 Kings 4.29 that God enlarged Solomon's heart. Look at 1 Chronicles chapter 29. 1 Chronicles 29. We're looking at God changing men's hearts for good. For good. He equipped Saul to be a great king. 1 Chronicles 29. David is blessing God and thanking Him for the generous giving of the people of Israel for the building of the temple. 1 Chronicles 29 and verse 9. Then the people rejoiced, for that they offered willingly, because with perfect heart they offered willingly to the Lord, and David the king also rejoiced with great joy. David rejoiced at seeing the greatness, the, the, the rejoicing spirit and generous giving of the people of Israel for building the temple. Verse 14. David is now praying, But who am I, and what is my people, that we should be able to offer so willingly after this sort. For all things come of thee, and of thine own have we given thee. David knew, and he's going to pray over here in verse 18, that this kind of giving was from the Lord. Verse 18, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and of Israel, our fathers, keep this forever in the imagination of the thoughts of the heart of thy people, and prepare their heart unto thee. Keep this kind of generous spirit in the hearts of your people, because it's not always there. This is a special, unique time. I sense it, I see it, I believe it. Keep it there, and prepare their heart unto thee. God prepares hearts. If you love the God of the Bible today, and if you love the Word of God today, what made that change in your life? Was there ever a time in your life where... You blew off religion as a bunch of nut cake, fruit cakes, a bunch of nuts. Did you not have time for it? Did you love the things of this world more than the things of God? What made the change? The Lord is able to prepare hearts. And here's an example of it in David's life. And David blessed the Lord for it when he saw it. Go to 2 Chronicles 29. 2 Chronicles 29. Thank you, Lord, for changing our hearts, turning our hearts. Opening our hearts. Give us more, please. Oh, David. David's going to... I, I want to go back. I preached that to you a few weeks ago on a Wednesday night. David was about to die. He saw the nation so gripped by, with prepared hearts that he knew that if God would keep that there in the thoughts of their hearts, he could die in peace and the nation would do wondrously. And so he begged God for that. 2 Chronicles 29 and verse 36. These are the days of Hezekiah. And they had the greatest Passover to that time. Verse 36 tells us, And Hezekiah rejoiced, and all the people, that God had prepared the people, for the thing was done suddenly. God got the whole nation very zealously interested in having this great Passover, and they did it very quickly. Chapter 30 and verse 12. Also in Judah, the hand of God was to give them one heart to do the commandment of the king and of the princes by the word of the Lord. The king and the princes 
had received the word of the Lord and had given the people instructions on what they were to do. And the people did it because God prepared them one heart. They all had one heart in unity and agreement wanting to do the commandment of God. God can change hearts. And these examples are to help you believe that. What man did God stir up his heart that he would order the city of Jerusalem, the temple of Jerusalem, to be rebuilt? Cyrus, the Persian? God's able to turn the heart of a Persian? Why would a king spend his money to build the capital city, a fortress on Mount Zion, with their temple of a nation that had caused other kings great problems in the past? Because God moved his heart. God stirred up the heart of Cyrus to make that decree that Jerusalem shall be rebuilt. Many years later, was his decree found in the annals of the Persian Empire and used again? Yes, it was. In the days of Artaxerxes and Darius. Look at Haggai 1.14. This is where you need to know those little books. The little book of Haggai. It's right between Zephaniah and Zechariah. Haggai came back to preach to those regathered Jews to encourage them and exhort them and warn them that they better build the Lord's house. We're looking at examples of God moving men's heart for good. Our first point was to humble us that God can blind our hearts, harden our hearts, give us over to a reprobate mind, or send strong delusion that we should believe a lie. We want to beg God for mercy from such a thing. The second point is we want to see that God can open hearts, incline hearts to righteousness, and give them the purpose to do something that is right and good. He can prepare hearts to be righteous. Haggai has been preaching and he gives his message in verses 1 through 13 of Haggai chapter 1. And here's verse 14. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people, and they came and did work in the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. They had not been building the Lord's house. The book of Haggai is a condemnation of the Jews because they had built their own houses rather than the house of the Lord. This is the passage where God says, consider your ways. You're working hard, but when you get home, You don't have any money left over because I've put holes in your bags and the wages are falling through onto the ground. You're getting nowhere because you've put your houses ahead of my houses. So they have been in one course of behavior, building their own houses and neglecting God's house. Haggai preaches to them for 13 verses and then we just read it. God stirred up Zerubbabel, the governor, Joshua, the high priest, and the rest of the people so that they all came and built the Lord's house. God is able to do that. When was the last time you prayed for God to prepare the hearts of the whole church of Greenville that they would come to worship in a way that would be acceptable and pleasing to Him? We need to make those prayers often. And God will hear them. The the, the, the point that I'm working right now are the examples from the Bible of God changing men's hearts for good and stirring them up. I'm thankful He is King of hearts and is able to do this. You had Acts 16 read to you. What was that woman's name again? I forgot her. Lydia. Lydia. What did she do for her business? Seller of purple. 
she, when her heart was opened, she attended. She took a great deal of interest in who's preaching? Paul's. What did she do after she heard the preaching? She got baptized. After she was baptized, what did she do? She wanted to show Christian hospitality by saying, I want Paul and Luke and all the rest of you to come to my house and stay. Who did all that? The Lord did. He opened her heart. And that was a changed woman. And she's one of our favorite characters in the Bible. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. He is king of hearts. This is why I say, and I said at the couple's retreat a couple weeks ago, the person that you married, whether you made a mistake, as you look back or not, it doesn't matter. The person you married, God chose that person for you because God was able to bring them along just when your heart was inclined to look for a spouse. And the Lord was able to bring them along in such a way that you just thought they were the cat's meow. He is king of hearts. There's no matchmaker like the God of heaven. Some of the stories of you people getting together are hilarious. Because you would think, well, that's just, that is just pure chance. But there is no chance with God. There is no chance with God. The Bible says the lot, or we would call it the die, the dice, the lot is cast into the lap, but the whole disposing thereof is of the Lord. There are no chance events in this universe. I don't even care if you're playing a game of chance. It's not a game of chance. You say, well, I think I'm going to go home and play Russian roulette then because God's not going to kill me. I can spin that cylinder with one bullet in one of the chambers and five empties, and there's no way I'll die. How do you know? His Bible says the fool shall not live long. You can't comfort yourself in the secret will of God. You've got to go by His revealed will. His revealed will is to keep guns locked up in the gun closet. His secret will just might be for you today to prove to the rest of us that you're the biggest fool we've ever met. And you don't want to do that. How can you avoid that ever happening? How can you keep that from being the secret will of God? Keep the gun closet closed when you're thinking such ridiculous thoughts. It's amazing what people will try to throw at me, and they'll throw it at you if they ever hear about us believing in a sovereign God. Well, then that means I can just go do anything I want. Go do anything you want. The Lord's going to let you go for a ways on that one. Why don't you pray that He'll recover you from it? We are not fatalists in the least degree. For those of you that have read the book, The Reformed Doctrine of Predestination by Lorraine Bettner, it is a Presbyterian book, but it's got a few things in it worth reading. And I told, I was talking to Brother Leon, I think, in the last week or two about this. We are not fatalists. Muslims are fatalists. Muslims are fatalists. You know, whatever shall be, will be. You know, that's deep. Um, a Muslim and a Christian are standing at the edge of a ship. And, and one of the passengers falls over and he's thrashing around the water and he's screaming out that he can't swim. And the Muslim says, if it's the will of Allah for him to be saved, he'll be saved. The Christian rips off his jacket and dives in saying, how do I know it's not the will of God that I save him? That is the use of means to accomplish the will of God that recognizes the two wills of God. 
the revealed will of obeying what He has said, and that's to save a life, trusting the secret will to bless your efforts in doing what is good by saying, how do I know it's not the will of God? And that's why we go into such and such a city and continue there a year and buy and sell and get gain. And all we have to do to cover that whole business plan, that strategic plan for business, is to say, if the Lord will. That is where we are. We're not fatalists. We don't wait around for God to change our hearts. We beg Him to change our hearts and we go do what a changed heart would do. And He'll bless that heart faster than any other. I want to tell you about Titus. Here's what the Bible says about Titus. Timothy and Titus were exceptional. That's why they got books in the Bible with their names over them. Paul said he had no man like Timothy who cared for the people with such a spirit as Timothy did. But in 2 Corinthians 8.16, look what it says about Titus. But thanks be to God, which put the same earnest care into the heart of Titus for you. God made Titus a loving bishop for the church at Corinth. And the church at Corinth, you needed God to put love in your heart for them. If you read First and Second Corinthians, that is not a lovable church. But God put it into the heart of Titus to be a loving bishop for them. One more example. Philippians chapter 2. If you've ever done anything toward God that pleases Him, it's because God worked it in you. Do you all believe that? Philippians chapter 2. Paul is exhorting this church in verse 12 to be faithful even when he is gone. Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That's what God has called us to do. That's what I preached this morning. Working out our salvation with fear and trembling by putting on the armor, taking up the weapon, and engaging in the soldierly activity. 4, verse 13, It is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of His good pleasure. If you ever do the good pleasure of God in your life, it's because God worked it in first. Verse 13, And what are we supposed to do? We are to work it out. God's already saved us. But we are to work it out and lay hold of eternal life by the good works and fruit that follow a Christian obeying the commandments of God. But notice, it's God that worked it in us. And that's a whole theological subject of God's regeneration and putting in us a new man. But there's a, there's a few examples of God changing men's hearts for good. The final point. Should we pray for it? Oh, yes. If God leaves your heart, 2 Chronicles 32, come to it with me. 2 Chronicles 32, it's Hezekiah. The three, the three greatest kings of Judah were David, Hezekiah, Josiah. This is one of the three greatest kings of Judah. Notice what it tells us about the heart of good king Hezekiah. 2 Chronicles 32 and verse 31. How be it? It is listing all the good things that Hezekiah did. That's why we have the word how be it, which is an adversative word, meaning he's about to say something that isn't so good. How be it in the business of the ambassadors of the princes of Babylon, who sent unto him to inquire of the wonder that was done in the land, God 
left him. To try him. That he might know all that was in his heart. God left Hezekiah to try him and to expose all that was in his heart. And do you know what was in his heart? Some pride. Do you know what that pride was? He wanted to show the ambassadors from Babylon how rich he was. Oh Lord, never leave us. This is what you must pray. Lord, never leave us. If you leave me, do not show me what is in my heart. Do not expose what is in my heart. Do not leave me. Do not give me opportunities to fail like Hezekiah did. Stay with me and protect me from my heart. Look at First Chronicles. I've already been there. First Chronicles 29.18. That is where David prayed that God would keep in the thoughts of the hearts of His people that generous spirit of giving that they had in First Chronicles 29. It was David's prayer because he could see a unity and a generous spirit and a love for the things of God like he had never seen before among his people. And so he prayed for it to continue. Our point here is, can we prove from the Bible that men pray for their hearts? Yes. We saw David doing that. Look at 1 Kings chapter 8. 1 Kings chapter 8. This is Solomon at the prayer of dedication for the temple that he built for his father. 1 Kings chapter 8. Solomon is in the midst of probably the longest and one of the best prayers in the Bible. Here's what he has to say in verse 57. The Lord, 1 Kings 8:57, The Lord our God be with us as He was with our fathers. Let Him not leave us, nor forsake us, that He may incline our hearts unto Him to walk in all His ways and to keep His commandments and His statutes and His judgments which He commanded our fathers. Hezekiah lived after Solomon, but Solomon prayed the right thing, didn't he? He prayed that God would not leave them, nor forsake them, but that He would incline your hearts. To incline your heart is to direct it, to change its angle so that it is facing something good instead of something evil. Change the angle and direction of my heart so that it is pointed toward your commandments, your statutes, and your judgments. This is the prayer that we ought to have. Do you pray for your heart? Do you pray for your spouse's heart? Do you pray for your children's hearts? Do you pray for the hearts of this church? You say, this sounds like Ephesians 6.19. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit and all perseverance and supplication for all saints. I'm glad that you remember both sermons. In Psalm 51 and verse 10, David said, Create in me a clean heart, O God. He had lost his clean heart because he gave it up to the lust of the flesh and the lust of his eyes. And he prayed for God to give him a clean heart in Psalm 51 and verse 10. Look at it with me just so that you can see it. Comprehension when you hear it through your ears and see it with your eyes is much better than either one by itself. Psalm 51 and verse 10, you know this is David's prayer of repentance for adultery and murder. 
And he prays to God, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Get me back to where I used to be. Give me a clean heart, free from guilt, shame, and fear, and renew a right spirit within me that wants to do your will again like I once did. Will he answer that prayer? Did God bless David after this event? Greatly. Did Jesus Christ still want to be known as the Son of David? Yes. Psalm 119. This is a prayer. Now there's 176 prayers in Psalm 119. But look at verse 32. Psalm 119, verse 32. I will run the way of thy commandments when thou shalt enlarge my heart. God can enlarge your heart. He enlarged the heart of Solomon. And he enlarged that heart with wisdom and understanding. We want God to enlarge our heart that we would love his commandments more than ever before. That his commandments would not be grievous to us at all, but that we would love them and delight in them. God is able to enlarge your heart. But notice what David promises God When, not if, but when God would enlarge his heart. You know, sometimes we say if or when. We make a play on the words if or when. David isn't making a play on if. David is making a commitment on the the certainty of God enlarging his heart. I will run the way of thy commandments when thou shalt enlarge my heart. Verse 32. Look at verse 36. Incline my heart unto thy testimonies and not to covetousness. Worldliness and all the things of this world attract us so much. But David prays, get my heart turned away from them and over toward your testimonies instead. Is God able to do that? The whole study that we've just had is to prove that God is able to change a man's heart and to turn it whithersoever he will. Do you think you're praying the will of God when you ask for God to direct your heart toward righteousness? You know you are. Is he able to do it? You know he is. Should you pray? The conclusion is obvious. We should pray for God to direct our hearts and enlarge them and make them great for his service and his glory. Look at verse 80. Let my heart be sound in thy statutes that I be not ashamed. Let my heart be so established and sound and holding to your commandments and your statutes that I do not have any weak places where I'm going to fall and be ashamed because I have sinned against you. Let my heart be sound. He's making a prayer for God to do something with his heart. Psalm 141. I'm almost done. Psalm 141. Are we surprised to find most of the examples of prayer for the heart, if not all of them, in the Psalms where David is writing, because he was the one that had the heart after God. He was the one after God's own heart. Psalm 141 and verse 4. Incline not my heart to any evil thing, to practice wicked works with men that work iniquity, And let me not eat of their dainties. 
incline. Not my heart to any evil thing and do not let me get enamored or excited or infatuated with the pretty things of this world. Do not let my heart go there. Does God turn some men's hearts over to those things? Yes, He does. But David is praying, don't do that to my heart. And that is what we ought to pray as well. Hebrews 13, the last verse. Hebrews chapter 13. As the Apostle Paul concluded his epistle to the Ephesians, he had this blessing and prayer for them. Your heart is the most important part of your being. The Bible says, Out of the abundance of the blank, the mouth speaketh. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. Every word that comes out of your mouth is already in your heart. We can ask God to purify us from the heart out. And that will solve your speech problem. The Bible says, keep thy heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. What we've seen is that men are not able to keep their hearts by themselves, so we should pray for God to help us keep our hearts. Let's glory in the sovereignty of a God that can humble His enemies by hardening their hearts and making them obstinate so that He can destroy them. Let's rejoice in the sovereign power of a God that is able to open our hearts and turn them to the things of Jesus Christ as He has it this day in our lives. And let us remember that when we bow down before God to pray, let us pray for our hearts and the hearts of our brethren and the hearts of all saints, that the Lord would keep them and incline them toward His statutes. Here is His benediction in verse 20 and 21. Hebrews 13. Now the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you perfect in every good work to do His will, working in you that which is well-pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Stand with me and let us pray.